Section 34 of Grey's Anatomy, Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion Anatomy of the Human Body, Part 1 by Henry Gray The Interior of the Skull, Part 2 Differences in the Skull Due to Age at birth. The skull is large in proportion to the other parts of the skeleton, but its facial portion is small, and equals only about one-eighth of the bulk of the cranium as compared with one-half in the adult. The frontal and parietal eminences are prominent, and the greatest width of the skull is at the level of the latter. On the other hand, the glabella, superciliary arches, and mastoid processes are not developed. Ossification of the skull bones is not completed, and many of them, e.g. the occipital, temporals, sphenoid, frontal and mandible, consist of more than one piece. Unossified membranous intervals, termed fontanelles, are seen at the angles of the parietal bones. These fontanelles are six in number. Two, an anterior and a posterior, are situated in the middle line, and two, an anterolateral and a posterolateral, on either side. The anterior or bregmatic fontanelle, is the largest, and is placed at the junction of the sagittal, coronal, and frontal sutures. It is lozenge-shaped, and measures about 4 cm in its anteroposterior and 2.5 cm in its transverse diameter. The posterior fontanelle is triangular in form and is situated at the junction of the sagittal and lambdoidal sutures. The lateral fontanelles are small, irregular in shape, and correspond respectively with the sphenoidal and mastoidal angles of the parietal bones. An additional fontanelle is sometimes seen in the sagittal suture at the region of the obelion. The fontanelles are usually closed by the growth and extension of the bones which surround them, but sometimes they are the sites of separate ossific centres which develop into sutural bones. The posterior and lateral fontanelles are obliterated within a month or two after birth, but the anterior is not completely closed until about the middle of the second year. The smallness of the face at birth is mainly accounted for by the rudimentary condition of the maxillae and mandible, the non-eruption of the teeth, and the small size of the maxillary air sinuses and nasal cavities. At birth the nasal cavities lie almost entirely between the orbits, and the lower border of the anterior nasal aperture is only a little below the level of the orbital floor. With the eruption of the deciduous teeth there is an enlargement of the face and jaws, and these changes are still more marked after the second dentition. The skull grows rapidly from birth to the seventh year, by which time the foramen magnum and petrous parts of the temporals have reached their full size, and the orbital cavities are only a little smaller than those of the adult. Growth is slow from the seventh year until the approach of puberty, when a second period of activity occurs. This results in an increase in all directions, but it is especially marked in the frontal and facial regions, where it is associated with the development of the air sinuses. Obliteration of the sutures of the vault of the skull takes place as age advances. This process may commence between the ages of 30 and 40, and is first seen on the inner surface, and some ten years later on the outer surface of the skull. The dates given are, however, only approximate, as it is impossible to state with anything like accuracy the time at which the sutures are closed. 
obliteration usually occurs first in the posterior part of the sagittal suture, next in the coronal, and then in the lambdoidal. In old age the skull generally becomes thinner and lighter, but in a small proportion of cases it increases in thickness and weight, owing to an hypertrophy of the inner table. The most striking feature of the old skull is the diminution in the size of the maxillae and mandible consequent on the loss of the teeth and the absorption of the alveolar processes. This is associated with a marked reduction in the vertical measurement of the face and with an alteration in the angles of the mandible. Sexual Differences in the Skull Until the age of puberty there is little difference between the skull of the female and that of the male. The skull of an adult female is, as a rule, lighter and smaller, and its cranial capacity about 10% less than that of the male. Its walls are thinner and its muscular ridges less strongly marked. The glabella, superciliary arches and mastoid processes are less prominent, and the corresponding air sinuses are small or rudimentary. The upper margin of the orbit is sharp, the forehead vertical, the frontal and parietal eminence is prominent, and the vault somewhat flattened. The contour of the face is more rounded, the facial bones are smoother, and the maxillae and mandible and their contained teeth smaller. From what has been said it will be seen that more of the infantile characteristics are retained in the skull of the adult female than in that of the adult male. A well-marked male or female skull can easily be recognized as such, but in some cases the respective characteristics are so indistinct that the determination of the sex may be difficult or impossible. Craniology Skulls vary in size and shape, and the term craniology is applied to the study of these variations. The capacity of the cranial cavity constitutes a good index of the size of the brain which it contained, and is most conveniently arrived at by filling the cavity with shot and measuring the contents in a graduated vessel. Skulls may be classified according to their capacities as follows. 1. Microcephalic with a capacity of less than 1,350 cubic centimetres, e.g. those of native Australians and Andaman Islanders. 2. Mesocephalic, with a capacity of from 1,350 cubic centimetres to 1,450 cubic centimetres, e.g. those of African Negroes and Chinese. 3. Megacephalic, with a capacity of over 1,450 cubic centimetres, e.g those of Europeans, Japanese, and Eskimos. In comparing the shape of one skull with that of another, it is necessary to adopt some definite position in which the skulls should be placed during the process of examination. They should be so placed that a line carried through the lower margin of the orbit and upper margin of the external acoustic meatus is in the horizontal plane. The normae of one skull can then be compared with those of another, and the differences in contour and surface form noted. Further, it is necessary that the various linear measurements used to determine the shape of the skull should be made between definite and easily localized points on its surface. The principal points may be divided into two groups, one, those in the median plane, and two, those on either side of it. The points in the median plane are the mental point, the most prominent point of the chin, alveolar point or prostheon the central point of the anterior margin of the upper alveolar arch. Subnasal point, the middle of the lower border of the anterior nasal aperture, at the base of the anterior nasal spine. Nasion, the central point of the frontonasal suture. Glabella, 
the point in the middle line at the level of the superciliary arches. Ophion, the point in the middle line of the forehead at the level where the temporal lines most nearly approach each other. Bregma, the meeting point of the coronal and sagittal sutures. Orbelion, a point in the sagittal suture on a level with the parietal foramina. Lambda, the point of junction of the sagittal and lambdoidal sutures. Occipital point, the point in the middle line of the occipital bone farthest from the glabella. Ineon, the external occipital protuberance. Opistheon, the midpoint of the posterior margin of the foramen magnum. Bassion, the midpoint of the anterior margin of the foramen magnum. The points on either side of the median plane are the gonion, the outer margin of the angle of the mandible. Dacrion, the point of union of the anterosuperior angle of the lacrimal with the frontal bone and the frontal process of the maxilla. Stephanion, the point where the temporal line intersects the coronal suture. Pterion, the point where the great wing of the sphenoid joins the sphenoidal angle of the parietal. Auricular point, the centre of the orifice of the external acoustic meatus. Asterion, the point of meeting of the lambdoidal, mastooccipital, and mastoparietal sutures. The horizontal circumference of the cranium is measured in a plane passing through the glabella, turner, or the ophrion, flower, in front, and the occipital point behind. It averages about 50 centimetres in the female and 52.5 centimetres in the male. The occipitofrontal or longitudinal arc is measured from the nasion over the middle line of the vertex to the opistheon, while the bassinasal length is the distance between the bassion and the nasion. These two measurements, plus the anteroposterior diameter of the foramen magnum, represent the vertical circumference of the cranium. The length is measured from the glabella to the occipital point, while the breadth or greatest transverse diameter is usually found near the external acoustic meatus. The proportion of breadth to length, breadth times a hundred, divided by length, is termed the cephalic index, or index of breadth. The height is usually measured from the bassion to the bregma, and the proportion of height to length, height times a hundred, divided by length, constitutes the vertical or height index. In studying the face, the principal points to be noted are the proportion of its length and breadth, the shape of the orbits and of the anterior nasal aperture, and the degree of projection of the jaws. The length of the face may be measured from the ophrion or nasion to the chin, or, if the mandible be wanting, to the alveolar point, while its width is represented by the distance between the zygomatic arches. By comparing the length with the width of the face, skulls may be divided into two groups. Dolicofacial, or leptoprosope, long-faced, and brachyfacial, or chemoprosope, short-faced. The orbital index signifies the proportion which the orbital height bears to the orbital width, thus. Orbital height times a hundred, divided by orbital width. The nasal index expresses the proportion which the width of the anterior nasal aperture bears to the height of the nose, the latter being measured from the nasion to the lower margin of the nasal aperture, thus. Nasal width times a hundred, divided by nasal height. The degree of projection of the jaws is determined by the gnathic or alveolar index, which represents the proportion between the bassialveolar and bassinasal lengths, thus. Bassialveolar length times a hundred, divided by bassinasal length. 
The following table, modified from that given by Duckworth, illustrates how these different indices may be utilized in the classification of skulls. Index 1. Cephalic, classification, below 75, nomenclature, dolichocephalic, examples, Kaffirs and native Australians. Index 1. Cephalic, classification, between 75 and 80, nomenclature, mesatycephalic, examples, Europeans and Chinese. Index 1. Cephalic, classification, above 80, nomenclature, brachycephalic, examples, Mongolians and Andamans. Index 2. Orbital Classification Below 84 Nomenclature Microseme Examples Tasmanians and Native Australians Index 2. Orbital Classification Between 84 and 89 Nomenclature Mesoseme Examples Europeans Index 2. Orbital Classification Above 89 Nomenclature Megoseme Examples Chinese and Polynesians Index 3. Nasal. Classification. Below 48. Nomenclature. Leptorine. Examples. Europeans. Index 3. Nasal. Classification. Between 48 and 53. Nomenclature. Mesorine. Examples. Japanese and Chinese. Index 3. Nasal. Classification. Above 53. Nomenclature. Platyrine. Examples. Negroes and Native Australians. Index 4. Gnathic. Classification. Below 98. Nomenclature. Orthognathus. Examples. Europeans. Index 4. Gnathic. Classification. Between 98 and 103. Nomenclature. Mesognathus. Examples. Chinese and Japanese. Index 4. Gnathic. Classification. Above 103. Nomenclature. Prognathus. Examples. Native Australians. The chief function of the skull is to protect the brain, and therefore those portions of the skull which are most exposed to external violence are thicker than those which are shielded from injury by overlying muscles. Thus the skull cap is thick and dense, whereas the temporal squamae being protected by the temporalis muscles and the inferior occipital fossae being shielded by the muscles at the back of the neck are thin and fragile. Fracture of the skull is further prevented by its elasticity, its rounded shape, and its construction of a number of secondary elastic arches, each made up of a single bone. The manner in which vibrations are transmitted through the bones of the skull is also of importance as regards its protective mechanism, at all events as far as the base is concerned. In the vault, the bones being of a fairly equal thickness and density, vibrations are transmitted in a uniform manner in all directions but in the base, owing to the varying thickness and density of the bones, this is not so, and therefore in this situation there are special buttresses which serve to carry the vibrations in certain definite directions. At the front of the skull, on either side, is the ridge which separates the anterior from the middle fossa of the base, and behind the ridge or buttress which separates the middle from the posterior fossa, and if any violence is applied to the vault, the vibrations would be carried along these buttresses to the cella turcica, where they meet. This part has been termed the centre of resistance, and here there is a special protective mechanism to guard the brain. The subarachnoid cavity at the base of the brain is dilated, and the cerebrospinal fluid which fills it acts as a water cushion to shield the brain from injury. In like manner, when violence is applied to the base of the skull, as in falls upon the feet, the vibrations are carried backwards 
through the occipital crest and forward through the basilar part of the occipital and body of the sphenoid to the vault of the skull. In connection with the bones of the face, a common malfunction is cleft palate. The cleft usually starts posteriorly, and its most elementary form is a bifid uvula, or the cleft may extend through the soft palate, or the posterior part of the whole of the hard palate may be involved, the cleft extending as far forward as the incisive foramen. In the severest form, the cleft extends through the alveolus and passes between the incisive or premaxillary bone and the rest of the maxilla, that is to say, between the lateral incisor and canine teeth. In some instances, the cleft runs between the central and lateral incisor teeth, and this has induced some anatomists to believe the premaxillary bone is developed from two centres and not from one, as was stated on page 163. The medial segment, bearing a central incisor, is called an endognathion. The lateral segment, bearing the lateral incisor, is called a mesognathion. The cleft may affect one or both sides. If the latter, the central part is frequently displaced forward and remains united to the septum of the nose, the deficiency in the alveolus being complicated with the cleft in the lip, hair lip. On examining a cleft palate in which the alveolus is not implicated, the cleft will generally appear to be in the median line, but occasionally is unilateral and in some cases bilateral. To understand this, it must be borne in mind that three processes are concerned in the formation of the palate. The palatine processes of the two maxillae, which grow in horizontally and unite in the middle line, and the ethmovomorine process, which grows downward from the base of the skull and frontonasal process to unite with the palatine processes in the middle line. In those cases where the palatine processes fail to unite with each other and with the medial process, the cleft of the palate is median. Where one palatine process unites with the medial septum, the other failing to do so, the cleft in the palate is unilateral. In some cases where the palatine processes fail to meet in the middle, the ethmovomorine process grows downward between them and thus produces a bilateral cleft. Occasionally there may be a hole in the middle line of the hard palate, the anterior part of the hard and soft palate being perfect. This is rare, because as a rule, the union of the various processes progresses from before backward, and therefore the posterior part of the palate is more frequently defective than the anterior. End of section 34